John Golia. I'm Greg Fife. And I'm Todd Curtis. And we are the Flight Safety Detectives. Between us, we have over a century of aviation accident investigation and safety experience to draw on as we discuss issues that affect all of us. So we are qualified to share our perspectives on accidents and incidents and what can be learned from them for the future. We're proud to say that we have two sponsors that really relate to the topic of aviation safety. The Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, or PAMA, and Avemco Insurance. Later on in the show, we'll tell you how you can get a 5% discount on your returns just for listening to the show. We don't just dissect the official reports. In every episode, we identify safety issues and take the mystery out of accident investigations. So maybe pilots in their planes can have safer flights ahead. Well, hello, Todd. Hello, John. It's a wonderful day in the neighborhood today. Uh, I'm I'm enjoying uh, some warm weather in Florida, and I can see you're still back in Massachusetts dealing with uh, January weather. I'm enjoying uh, freezing-type weather as much as I can, given it's freezing type weather. Yes. Well, today we have an interesting helicopter accident. It's interesting for a couple of different reasons, and we'll get into that in a minute. But uh, I'll let you set the stage for it. Very good. This was a, a, a 2007, excuse me, 2020 event, July 7th in Arizona. This was a, a Bell UH-1 uh, helicopter. Vintage 1964, very likely was uh, flying uh, either in Vietnam or definitely flying with the Army during the Vietnam conflict. Fast forward uh, almost 60 years, it was being used to support firefighting operations in Arizona. This is a high uh, density altitude operation, about 8,000 feet up, and it was flying external loads back and forth between various locations where fire was going on. And after three successful um, trips with an external load, the aircraft uh, lost control and crashed. And the reason for that, and this is sort of getting to the end of the story here, there was an extensive examination of the wreckage, extensive research behind the scenes, plenty of stuff in the public docket, but yet they still couldn't figure out a definitive cause of the accident. Uh, due to the post-crash fire and other damage, there wasn't a lot left on, of the aircraft to examine. And as a result, they were not able to pin down what it was. They were able to sort of narrow the focus to several kinds of system failures, but they weren't able to see anything beyond that. For example, the pilot, there was nothing about the pilot's uh, uh, record or behavior during the, that day that indicated that the pilot did something uh, unusual. Uh, the controls of the aircraft post-crash, the examination showed that the controls were in a position that was completely not what you would have when you're doing the kind of operation with an external load. That is, it was the stick was pulled far back to the rear, far more than you would see in a normal operation. 
So they basically implied that it wasn't a pilot-induced thing. This must have been a system failure sort of thing. Extensive examination of the components, including something I rarely see, a lot of CT scans of the individual components with the control system, and still they weren't able to come up with something. And although it's uh, frustrating to have this kind of finding where it's not definitive, it's not surprising given the level of destruction of the aircraft, the fact that this aircraft did not have any kind of flight recorders on board, nor was it required to, and unfortunately the fact that we don't have a surviving pilot to give us more details about what was going on in the aircraft or in the cockpit at the time of the accident. Yes, well, I'll, I'll take it backwards. You know, the NTSB does have a, a laboratory that's very well equipped. And even while I was there uh, much earlier than this accident, we oftentimes would see T scan a number of components. Um, sometimes after the accident was already off the table, so to speak. And, uh, and the lab people would continue to dig to, the, to uh, perfect their systems that they use internally to identify problems. But uh, the, the NTSB does have a very, very good lab for doing X-rays, CT scans, all kinds of non-destructive and destructive testing. So that doesn't really surprise me that they did that. But what it does tell me the level that they did that was because there was so little of the wreckage left that they couldn't try to determine any outcome um, without going through the extra effort of CT scanning all those uh, components, mainly the flight control components, uh, to see if they could get some insights into positioning at the time of impact, uh, if there was a problem in jamming internally, any, any kind of abnormal function of that unit that could have contributed to the crash. But unfortunately, they were unable to get it. So despite our best efforts, here we are in the 2020s, despite the best efforts of some very knowledgeable people, uh, this crash will really remain uh, under, under evaluated and a, a, uh, not a very big contributor to aviation safety, because we just don't know. But then again, it's also a 60 plus year old airplane, or not quite 60 year old airplane, uh, very common in use uh, for cities and towns. Uh, used to be all sorts of people using surplus helicopters because they were very, very inexpensive to acquire. But most of that's dried up now that those those diesel particular airplanes are long gone from the inventory everywhere, but there are still few uh, organizations that operate them, but not for commercial use, parades and in uh, you know giving people rides at uh, military type air show functions. So it's they're out there, but not in large numbers. So that sort of uh, moves them down on the the radar for the FAA to really focus in on them and try to make changes to the to the uh, airframe, which, you know, it's it's um, was never a commercial airframe. So that comes with its own set of problems as well. So it's, it's an interesting accident and it falls into an interesting little niche between all of it. Uh, 
but there are some things in here that, that are a concern. You know, what the first thing that jumped out to me as I was reading it, and you mentioned it a minute ago, was uh, the number of loads that he did. Carrying a, a, a sling load under a helicopter is not for the faint of heart. Right? It's a lot of work on the part of the pilot. You know, if you've got this, this heavy weight underneath you, you're moving it, it's lagging. You've got uh, in and around uh, fires, you have sometimes gale force winds that are generated because of all that heat coming up and drawing cooler air in from the sides. So you could have this load really swinging in a, in a direction that uh, you weren't expecting. You know, so if you're moving forward, you know, the, the, the load's going to lag behind you. But if all of a sudden uh, strong winds hits it, it, it buffets your, your, your vehicle, your airplane, but it also shifts that load and might shift it to the side. And now you've got two or three different opposing forces acting on the helicopter and making control very, very difficult. And there's no way of recording that that's going to uh, benefit the accident investigation. So you've got all of these different things that come together that, that are not recorded. They just happen and nobody knows about them except the guy in the cockpit who's trying to figure out what the hell's happening to his, his vehicle and trying to control it. So it's it's uh, quite difficult. So that kind of mental and physical fatigue in controlling the helicopter very likely was a contributor to what we see happening here in this accident. And although there was quite a bit of information about this uh, event, uh, both in the public docket and the uh, report, including the experience of the pilot who had something on the order of 11,000 total hours and about 172 in this type of aircraft, uh, nothing I could find that stated whether or not this pilot had flown in this kind of condition before. That is, this was a uh, high terrain, high density altitude, rather, about 8,000 feet and a firefighting situation. And although uh, one presumes that this person had experience flying this kind of challenging condition, I didn't see anything that extensively detailed whether or not he had done so recently, whether he had done so in this area, whether he had done so uh, with this particular uh, ground crew, anything that give, gave an idea of his familiarity with the difficulties and the challenges. And also, although there was a extensive uh, maintenance history on this aircraft. I didn't see anything that said whether or not this kind of problem or a similar control problem had happened with this airframe before. So it's unclear to me whether this was a situation where the aircraft had issues before that were hinting at this, or whether this was a completely out of the blue situation. Yeah, it's, it's just one of those unknowns. It may, it'll probably sit there forever, never being fully resolved. You know, people don't even realize that we've had airplane, commercial airplane accidents that fall into the same. You know, Colorado Springs had the 737 United Airlines accident. And at the time, the NTSB said, well, the most likely cause then was uh, uh, mountain effects for uh, wind, you know, downdrafts and the crazy wind that we get around mountains under certain conditions. And uh, that's the best that they could come up with. But then years later, many years later, because of uh, the the uh, 737 crash in Pittsburgh, U.S. Airs, and we did extensive work uh, with more information available to us than a 
than a uh, early flight data recorder uh, and five years worth of, of work. Took us five years to get to the bottom of that accident. Uh, finally, we came back and found out that it was a hidden flaw in the flight controls on the rudder. And, and we uh, Boeing ended up retrofitting every single 737 out there around the world uh, with new hardware to fix the problem. But it had been sitting there all that time just waiting to cause another problem. And it did kill a bunch of people. Uh, but that won't particularly happen on this type of equipment because there's just not enough of it out there. It's, and it's not going to be a flying passengers commercially. Well, at least I don't know of any commercial operation with, with a, a Huey. Because there were military uh, aircraft, most of them are in the experimental category. So I'm not so sure that uh, that's going to be high on anybody's agenda to, to, to continue to follow this to try to find the, the problem. But it's unfortunate that uh, we got into this situation. And this points out another issue that exists across aviation in that there have been many, many, many aircraft and helicopter models produced over the decades. In some cases, the original manufacturer doesn't exist anymore. And the entity that holds the uh, operative certificate to uh, follow up on airworthiness directives and such, uh, they may not have the kind of extensive um, resources that a fully operational company would. And also, as you pointed, this was run on an experimental ticket. If you fly an aircraft that's in a special use category, air shows, firefighting, et cetera, it's an older airframe, it's not a production aircraft, that stacks up the risk. Not an unacceptable risk because, for example, for firefighting, there are all kinds of aircraft out there doing firefighting, which are long past their prime as a commercial aircraft used for other things, yet they're used for firefighting and they do crash on occasion. And they sometimes do so in a spectacular way and, and kill all the crew on board. But this is, I would say, societally considered an acceptable risk. Now, if it uh, ends up killing a lot of people, then maybe action will be taken. But in this case, even if there was another helicopter with more or less the same issue happening, much like what happened to 737, you have two accidents years apart with similarities. Further investigation and research shows that there is a commonality and there will be a requirement to change things. There are not that many aircraft out there. So it's unlikely there will be another aircraft of this, this, this model aircraft having this kind of accident. Even less likely that there would be a, a desire on the part of the FAA and the NTSB to really push changing all the existing aircraft so that this kind of accident doesn't happen again. Well, there's an interesting twist to this to this story that has nothing to do with the accident. You know, we saw a very spectacular mid-air collision in, te in Texas recently with the P-63, I think it was, the Air Cobra and mm -hmm. the B-17 and killed everybody in that accident. Fortunately, it, uh, they were far enough away from the show. The air show crowd that nobody on the ground was impacted. But now the FAA has taken a good hard look at, you know, air shows and these old warbirds and should we be doing what we're doing with them? You know, we had the, the B-17 that crashed uh, near you in Hartford, near both of us in Hartford, Connecticut, when I'm at home. 
So, I mean, we these old airplanes, you know, maybe it's time to reassess what we're doing with them. And I know that's going to tick off a whole bunch of our listeners that love old warbirds, and I love them myself. But we got to take a look and see uh, how we use them. Do we want to use them in air shows in this very elaborate setting, or we just use them point-to-point -point flying uh, like they were designed to do? Uh, you know, at least the bombers, the the, uh, the fighters were designed to do all sorts of things. But do we want to do that with them today? You know, metal does age. People don't realize it, but metal does age. And uh, maybe we should limit uh, the G loads and whatever else we do with the airplanes. So I'm not, I know the FAA is uh, slowly looking at that whole issue of what to do with it. And I know that the industry, the guys that own these airplanes and fly these airplanes are going to go crazy uh, if the FAA tries to restrict them. But uh, I like seeing them fly myself. In fact, I still curse that I uh, missed a ride with with uh, Bob Hoover and Old Yeller at uh, Oshkosh one year. So, you know, it's I would not want to be in the FAA shoes on this issue if they bring it to the table, because it's going to get criticized from every different side. On it, but uh, related to that, it's hard to ignore those issues you talked about, whether or not there should be serious consideration for doing something with warbirds when in the last, what, decade, you have two major NTSB investigations involving a B-17? Who saw that coming? Yeah, right. Yeah. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of other issues in here, too. The pilots that fly these airplanes, the, the pilots that had extensive experience flying these airplanes are gone. The maintenance, people who maintain them are mostly gone, if not all gone. I mean, even these helicopters, you know, in 1980, we had a ton of, of Vietnam era mechanics that lived with these airplanes 24-7. Those people are not out there anymore. And we're, and we're using a newer generation of mechanics, not even the most experienced. And, and uh, is that having an impact on this? I can't answer that question, but it's you know a question that should be put on the table to to talk about. Well, I can't think of anything else to add to this. Can you? Uh, no, and uh, you know if I were to have a last word on this, is that some accidents it's pretty obvious that there's a reason to make extensive changes, a reason to look at this as a serious issue that might change how aviation is done. This isn't one of them. But it's also an example of the kind of, of event and kind of risk that's faced every day in that there are various levels of risk in aviation. Some of the risk is fairly obvious, even if you're not an aviation professional. But the question is, is it an acceptable risk? In this case, I believe it, it definitely is because there is a very specific role that this aircraft had, a practical role, a role that was there to uh, save uh, forests, save people, save lives. And in this case, unfortunately, there was a crash involved with that. But I don't think, in my opinion, that this should keep this kind of operation from happening. Now, the same may not be said for something like air shows, but again, there's a societal benefit that's pretty obvious from firefighting aircraft. 
and they, in my opinion, should be allowed to fly with a little bit more leeway than airshow aircraft. Yeah, they, they typically they do, but yes, uh, you, you you want to put the fire out, plain and simple. Okay, well I will end this show as I always do. If you're going to go flying, do a very thorough job of pre-planning your flight, including the weather, where you are, where you're going, and everything in between. When you get out to the airport, do a good pre-flight on your airplane. If you don't know what a good pre-flight is, get a hold of a mechanic that works on that type of airplane and have them give you a quick walk around, showing you, pointing out what to look for. After you get in the air, put that head of yours on a swivel. Um, you know, you want to know what's going on in front as much as you can in the back and on the sides. Make sure your situational awareness, you know who's around you, because we still have too many mid-airs. We just talked about the famous one. We still have too many. If you're a student pilot, cover yourself, get a, get a policy for rent, renting airplanes, protect yourself, protect your family, high cost of, uh, of an accident. But most people don't realize the numbers and how big they get when there is an accident and how quickly they get there. And please fly safely. Thank you for checking out our show. We really value our listeners and subscribers. Our podcast gets ranked by you and how much you like it. So please give us five stars in your podcast platform. We want to keep in contact with you. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and of course, YouTube. You can email the show at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. By the way, if you're on YouTube, we're really working on growing the channel, and it helps if you all send in comments. Please do that, and we read all the comments. And be sure to subscribe. Remember, if you're in the market for aviation insurance, you can save 5% with Avemco just by mentioning our show. Visit them at www.avemco.com. That's it for this episode of the Flight Safety Detective. Until the next episode, fly safe.